All right, if you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 uh, through 17, have a word of prayer, and then jump into our message for this morning. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you will open our hearts and minds to understand the truths that are here. Lord, just as Mark intended, I pray that you'll help us to get a new and greater vision of who Jesus, the Son of God, really is. Help it to challenge our hearts. May the gospel of it change our hearts and lives. And Lord, may it help us to realize as his disciples what our life ought to be as we walk in the steps of our Master and Lord. So I pray that you'll use us in our lives, help us to be encouraged by it, help us to even be prepared as we consider more about the Christmas season through all of this, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This week is the third week in Advent. It's a week of joy. That's why we read what we did. That's why we sang what we have so far. There's more Christmas carols on joy that are coming. But as I thought about that, I thought, well, how ironic is that when we get to a message that's called Breaking All the Rules? And then I remembered as my time as a uh, school principal that there are some kids who get a lot of joy out of breaking all the rules. Now when we talk about breaking all the rules in this chapter, chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through about halfway through chapter 3, rules are going to be broken. But they're not God's rules that are being broken. As Jesus Christ moves through his ministry, he's going to begin breaking rules of the Pharisees, rules that they've imposed upon people, rules that God never intended to be imposed the way they imposed them. And as Jesus Christ does this, the tension of his ministry is going to grow around all of Galilee and Judea as the scribes and the Pharisees are just going to become infuriated with this man, this rabbi, this popular teacher, the Son of God, who's breaking all their rules. It's interesting, again, we're about to look at the call of Levi, the call of Matthew as a disciple. And as we look at that passage, we need to realize again, just as we did in chapter 1, Jesus Christ's priority on prayer. Mark doesn't talk about it here, but if you turn over to Luke, look over at Luke chapter 6, just a few pages over, verses 12 and 13, talking about this same time in Jesus' ministry. Luke adds this to the story that Mark doesn't give us. It says, In these days he went out to the mountains to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Again, I look at this and I see Jesus Christ moves off to a solitary place, goes out of his way to be out of the way where he can pray without being interrupted. And he spends all night in prayer before calling his disciples. And again, as we get into this story about Levi, Matthew as we know him, we have to ask ourselves... Why does he do that? Now, if you had a task and knew the next day, you had to pick out 12 followers who are going to take the most important message in all of history, the gospel message, and give it out throughout the whole world, 
Maybe that would, you'd understand, I'd understand why we would spend the night in prayer. Was Jesus Christ praying, Lord, God, help me know who to pick tomorrow? Did Jesus not know who his disciples would be? Jesus already knew who he was going to pick. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to wander the streets tomorrow and you need to guide and lead me to the right people. So what was Jesus praying about all night? Mark doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us. We could speculate a little. My guess is Jesus was praying for these 12 guys. Did they need it? Keep reading the Gospels. They needed all the prayer that they could get. And so all night long, Jesus prays. And then the next day, he goes out and he begins calling disciples. And he called more than 12, according to what Luke tells us. He called people around him. You know, when Jesus Christ was crucified, this group of disciples gathered together in fear. It was more than just the 12. But out of these disciples, he calls 12 men to be his apostles. What's the difference? There's a lot of differences, but just in the name of the word as we go through this. A disciple is one who learns by doing. It's kind of the idea of being an apprentice. And everyone who came to Christ to follow him, they were supposed to learn by doing. They were supposed to walk with him. Apostles were special ambassadors. He chose 12 of them. 12 men who would form the church of Jesus Christ as he went on and ascended into heaven and carry on and teach and lay the foundation for his church. But in the midst of all this, it says, Jesus came and verse 13 of Mark chapter 2, he went out beside the sea. He spent the night in prayer. Now he goes out along the seashore, along the city of Capernaum, and all the crowds were coming to him and he was teaching them. So this was a basic day of Jesus' ministry. It was like many other days, except some important things were about to happen. In the midst of teaching, in the midst of these followers, he was going to not only share the gospel, but he was going to pick out disciples. Disciples to carry on the gospel. As we look at this story of Levi this, this morning, we're going to see the glory of the gospel that receives unworthy sinners. Forgiveness is not granted to people who are good enough to earn it. Think about that for a moment. God did not forgive you because you were good enough to earn it. In fact, we could do nothing to earn it. It's interesting, and we need to take a lesson from that, because Paul's going to later tell us, and Jesus Christ himself as well, that we're to forgive others in the same way that we were forgiven. You ever have trouble forgiving somebody? Say, I'm not sure they really mean it. Did God forgive you that way? In fact, as he goes and calls Levi, Levi doesn't deserve it any more than Simon deserved it any more than Andrew deserved it. But the gospel goes out to those who don't deserve it, but those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what this whole gospel is. Mark shares it, what this is going to be about. God saves those who don't deserve it. Look over at Romans chapter 5. Again, just setting, setting the foundation for what we're about to see in, in Matthew's life. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. In describing the gospel and what is going to be a problem in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, In just a moment, Paul says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not die for good, wonderful people. And I say that because sometimes sitting here at church, and especially sitting here in an independent Baptist church, we get the idea as we fossilize in our pews that we are good, wonderful people. We're not. Look around you. Every one of us are sinners. 
Sinners saved by the grace and mercy of God. And that's what this story about Matthew is all about. We were sinners desperately in need of God's touch. And that's what it says in Romans 5, 6. He goes on to say, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is here to seek and to save the lost. He's going to talk about that in this very passage. He's here to bring the gospel to those who need it. And God designed the gospel such that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve a thing. Neither did Matthew. Neither did Peter. Neither did Andrew. Neither did any of those in this story that we're going to look at. So we need to keep that in mind. Besides that, he goes on and says in Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The amazing thing about God's love is God sent Christ to die while we were still ungodly sinners and we were under God's wrath. We deserved an eternity in hell. In fact, verse 10 tells us, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You and I weren't sitting around neutral on this planet, wondering what would happen to us, hoping that our good works would outweigh our bad. Before you came to Christ, and if you have not come to Christ, you're an enemy of God. You are opposed to God in everything that God stands for, in our sin and in our wickedness. And in the midst of all that, Jesus Christ died so that there could be reconciliation. And that's the last verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. It says there, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we have received reconciliation. That's what salvation is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. Too often we think the gospel is just about me not having to go to hell. That's a benefit of the gospel. We were destined for eternity in hell. Jesus Christ died. He died to forgive our sins, but not just so that we wouldn't have to go to hell. He died to forgive our sins so that we could stand righteous in him and we could be reconciled to God and no longer be his enemies, but be part of his family. Reconciliation is a huge part of the gospel. And we're going to see reconciliation in this passage this morning. So keep all that in mind as we go through this. It's not the works of righteousness which we've done. Titus 3.5 says we were saved not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God's mercy. Where would you be without God's mercy today? Again, remember who you really are. Again, we, we sit here on a Sunday morning, and often it's easy in our minds, whether we would verbalize it or not, to think, I'm doing pretty good. This is a rainy Sunday morning. You know what rainy Sunday mornings were made for? I should still be in bed sleeping. And it's like, I think the devil does that. There's probably more rainy Sunday mornings around here than any other day of the week. It's cold. It's rainy. It's great to be in bed. And we get here and we show up. And most of us showed up on time and we got a seat. Some of you really showed up early because you got the back rows. And you got here and you're, you're, you're serving and you're, you're, you're worshiping and you're singing. And you're thinking, I'm a pretty good guy. Look where I am. I'm right where I belong. And you are where you belong. But you are where you belong by the grace and mercy of God. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be there. And so all of this is part of what's happening behind the scenes as we look at what God is doing in his mercy and how he's preparing those who are repenting for salvation. And again, we need to remember how we got to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is teaching us who this chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really is. What does it mean? How does he work? Who is he? 
How does he minister and how does this ministry work as it comes in contact with our lives? And in verse chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, last week we looked at the story of the paralyzed man who was healed by Jesus. That healing miracle, Mark puts it in here to tell us that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sin. The story this morning, as we get into the call of Levi, is there to demonstrate the people to whom God's going to extend that forgiveness. Wretched sinners who need Jesus Christ. And again, this is a story of only about five or six verses. And I'll be honest, in fact, printed on my first sheet of my notes here, I put breaking all the rules, and I was going to go all the way through verse 28. I was going to zip through this chapter, and then I started going through these few verses and thought, this is foundational. If we miss what happens here with Levi, we miss what Mark's trying to teach us about the Savior, about how he works, about how he ministers, about what he's doing. And it illustrates the fact that no sinner's beyond the reach of God. You ever think of maybe a friend, a family member, and you're like, you know what, I'm just not going to share the gospel with him because God's not going to save that guy. You know who would have been one of those guys? Matthew. If society looked at Matthew, they would have looked and said, that guy's not worth saving. That guy's never going to come to Christ. And yet, we're going to see a miracle in Matthew's life. And you're going to miss it if you're not careful. You're going to zip through these verses so fast that you miss what's taking place in the miracle of change that's taking place in his life. Jesus was willing to save even the lowest of the low, a hated tax collector. And remember who he's got with him. He's already called Peter and Andrew, James and John. Four men with huge personalities. Four men that... You didn't really need to wonder what they were thinking. We we blame Peter for that all the time, but Peter wasn't nicknamed by Christ the Sons of Thunder. James and John were. And so these men were with him, and you need to remember that as we get into this passage and we look at what's about to happen. So let's look at the call of Levi. Chapter 2, verse 13. And he went out again along the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So in the midst of his busy ministry, Jesus is surrounded by people. As Jesus is about to call Levi, remember, he's not by himself. He's not even just there with three or four disciples. You know, I kind of pictured this in my mind as a kid when I was learning about the calling of the disciples. Jesus Christ kind of walked around, and he called Peter, James, and John, and they followed him. So now there's five of them walking around. And then he looks over and says, Matthew, follow me. Now you've got six, you know, like ducks all in a row. Come here, five, six all together with Jesus coming along. And that's not what happened here. Here Jesus is with a huge crowd of people. Jewish people in Capernaum, the largest city up there in the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee, a booming metropolis of business, of fishing, all kinds of commerce taking place here. And as Jesus walks by the seaside, there's a sea, wow, the side of the sea, there's a huge crowd following him. And as this crowd follows him, he stops and he passes by and he looks over and Levi probably sitting in a booth. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But probably sitting in a booth, he sees Levi, and he's about to call him. He looks over, seeing Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. We know Levi, we know him more commonly by Matthew, but Levi's his Jewish name. And Mark uses his Jewish name. Why do you suppose that is? Because he's underlining the fact And again, remember where he probably got a lot of his information from, from Peter. And Peter's telling him these stories. And now Mark is underlining the fact as he writes this gospel that Levi was Jewish. 
He was the lowest of the low of Jews. He was a hated Jew. And that's all going to come out as we read some of this going forward. But he was Jewish. We know by his name Levi. We know by his dad's name Alphaeus. It's all Jewish names. And here he is sitting at a tax booth. How many of you remember the old booths when you had to travel through and you had to pay when you were running down the street? You remember those toll booths? Most of them don't exist anymore, right? Now, now at least you got, you got a pass and you go through and it, it takes you. In New York State, they took the booths right out and they take a picture. Uh, Big Brothers there. Taking a picture of your license plate and if you don't pay and have automatic pay, they send you a bill. But in these days, Matthew is sitting here and he's at a booth and he's probably taking up taxes. Probably taxes having to do with the commerce that's going on having to do with the fishing that's going on there, having to do with using the system of roads that's going on there. And he's collecting taxes for the Roman government and for himself. You see, as Jesus looks over at Levi, with a whole crowd of people following him, nobody in that crowd loved Levi. Levi was despised. And Jesus looks over, and all these people he could have called following him, and he looks over and he points at Levi and he says, follow me. Mark doesn't give us the crowd's reaction. What do you imagine it was? These people hated Levi. They respected Jesus Christ. They were excited about Jesus. He was healing people. He was teaching like nobody ever taught, but now he's making one of the biggest mistakes in his ministry, according to the folks. He looks over at the worst character in the whole town. He says, follow me. What do you think they thought? You know what else is interesting? He's already got some disciples following him. Peter, Andrew, James, John. What did they do before following Christ? They were fishermen. You know whose booth they probably had to stop at regularly to pay taxes that they didn't want to pay? Levi's. Levi was well known. You think Peter, Andrew, James, and John had an opinion about calling Levi? Did the disciples ever get in disputes? Well, they got into some real humdingers. And Jesus had to stop them all the time and correct them. You're like, Jesus, why are you calling Levi? You're asking for it. And yet, he looks over, he points at Levi, and he says, follow me. Self-respecting Jewish people didn't even talk to these tax collectors, let alone want them as followers. So what's going on here? Jesus is shattering stereotypes. Jesus is beginning to break all the rules. And as he begins to do that, we see Levi is here as a tax collector, and there's a good reason that Levi's hated. Levi's earned it. What do we know about tax collectors? We know, number one, that the Roman government At that time, through Herod, in that region, set up taxing authorities. And then Herod would turn around because Herod had better things to do than collect the taxes. He just wanted to live off them. So he would sell those taxing rights to a couple of different kinds of people that were out there collecting taxes. And there were two different names, and they're in Hebrew, and I'm not going to stumble through them for you. But there were tax collectors that collected what they called the poll tax. You got taxed just because you breathed. And then there were income taxes, about 1%. And then there were land taxes, roughly 5% on anything that you grew agriculturally. And then on top of that, and this is what we think Levi probably was, there was a second group of tax collectors. And these are the guys that set up the booths along major trade routes. And you would have to pay tax on goods and services, fish. You would have to pay tax on using the roads, 
Now, they didn't take a picture of your license and catch you if you, got, you, know, you didn't have a license on the back of your cart or camel. But they would get you. And they would get you because they had the authority of the Roman government behind them. And they would get you for, as the scripture tells us, and even as history tells us, they'd get you for, number one, what the Roman government wanted. So you're collecting money from your own folks to give it to the Romans. Is there any wonder that they're hated? But not only that, it was widely known that the Romans weren't going to pay you. So you got to collect whatever else you could add to that fee, and then you got to keep that. And as we look at Matthew, we're going to find in this passage, he was probably very well to do. Because it was those who had some financial savvy and some terrible morals that would go into doing this, and they'd get rich. Because if you didn't pay them what they asked for, they could sick the Roman government on you. They also were allowed to hire their own thugs. It's almost like loan sharks, and they operated that way. Because if you didn't pay your taxes, they sent these guys out to get the taxes. And you could get hurt if you didn't pay your taxes. Because they were responsible to turn the money over to Rome, at least part of the money. And then on top of that, if you couldn't pay your taxes and you came begging for an opportunity, they would loan you money at super huge interest rates. They were the first loan sharks that we know of. I'm sure there were some before them, but they were like loan sharks, taking advantage of their own people. So Levi is hated for a reason. He was probably one of the most hated and despised people in that whole city. And so as Jesus comes by and all this is going on, this is in the back of the people's minds. In fact, Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 tell us this about tax collectors. There were tax collectors who came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And you know what they were told? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Everybody knew what they were doing. And if they were going to come to Christ, Christ said, You've got to stop doing what you're doing. You can't get rich off people. You can collect only what you have to collect. And so this is in the minds of all those that are there as they go through this. And now they're looked at not only that, but as traitors. When people looked at Levi, and again, remember how the Jewish society worked? Religion was intricate to society. And if you were a tax collector, you were considered unclean. Which meant good Jewish people didn't go to your house or they couldn't worship till they were clean again. You were considered unclean, so you could not come into the synagogue and attend the synagogue meetings. The center of Jewish society, but you weren't allowed in there because you were unclean. You were pretty much kept out of all of society. In fact, you were even prohibited from testifying in Jewish court if you were a tax collector. Why would that be? Tax collector could put his hand, they didn't put their hand on the Bible, but they could swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And what did they do for a living? Lie to people. And so they weren't allowed into Jewish court. And so all this is going on with these tax collectors and what's happening here. And likely, more than once, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had, had run-ins with Levi. Because Levi was taxing their very livelihood. So you've got disciples probably looking at Jesus and wondering, what in the world just happened? You have the scribes and the Pharisees. We know what they're thinking because they're about to do it. They're about to go after Jesus for doing this because he's breaking all the rules when he says, follow me, but don't miss the next miracle that takes place. We look at this passage and it says, end of verse 14, and he rose and followed him. One small phrase that changed a man's whole life and livelihood. When it says that Levi arose and followed Jesus Christ, what does it mean? Levi has arisen. He's left his tax booth to follow Jesus Christ. 
We find later, as we see what happens in the next verse, he's left it all behind him to follow Jesus Christ. Matthew was a lucrative business person. He is hated. He did it the wrong way, but he had everything he could want. He's got a nice home. We know that because he's about to have Jesus and all the disciples and and his friends into home with dinner with Jesus. He can feed all these people. He can house all these people. There's room for all these people. Matthew has all kinds of things going his way. And in a moment, he gets up and he follows. That response is miraculous. It's a reflection of the supernatural work of regeneration taking place. The gospel changes people. And at the moment that Jesus Christ looked, Jesus Christ knew Levi. You, know, you read again and again in the Gospels that Jesus knew men's hearts. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew men's hearts? Nobody fools us anymore. Nobody pulls anything over on us. Everybody's genuine. Jesus Christ looks at Levi, and when he looks at Levi, he says, Here is a man who's lonely, who's miserable, who's weighed down with the weight of his own sin. And here's a man who's ready to repent. If he's not, Jesus Christ doesn't call him. He puts his finger right on it, and immediately Levi leaves everything to follow him. He's transformed from a tax-collecting lover of money to a Christ-following lover of God. It's amazing, and it's a miracle. The money, the power, the pleasures that had gripped his heart for so long lost their grip for his love for Jesus Christ. And I look at that, and I think, in our society, money, power, wealth, All the things that we have are the things that still keep men and women from Jesus Christ. And Matthew had it all, leaves it behind, and immediately he follows him. He wanted forgiveness, and he knew Jesus was the only one who could provide it. That's an interesting contrast to another man who comes to Jesus. Later in his ministry, a rich, young ruler is going to come to Jesus. And what does he want? What must I do to have eternal life? And he even has the audacity to tell Jesus Christ he's kept all Ten Commandments his entire life, even though he's as covetous as a man can be. Riches are his God, but he says, I've done that all. And Jesus tells him what? Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he went away sad because he had great riches. Levi does exactly the opposite. He gets up, he's willing to leave it all behind to follow Jesus Christ. And it's what's going to make all the difference. He lost material possessions but gained eternal life. He lost earthly security but gained heavenly future. He lost financial reward but gained an unfading crown of glory. He was barred from the synagogue, but he was accepted by Jesus Christ and stood in a right relationship with God. It was a huge difference in the life of Levi as he comes. And we see that difference beginning in verse 15. In verse 15, we not only see the call, but then we see the community. Levi's community. Look what happens in verse 15. It says, And he, was, he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. So we go from the scene at the tax booth where? To Matthew's house. And Matthew's house is full of people. It's full of disciples that were following Jesus Christ. And he's feeding them. They're reclining at the table. They're eating together. And then Matthew brings his friends. Who are Matthew's friends going to be? He's the dregs of society. So when Matthew has to go to his circle of friends, he goes to sinners, prostitutes, the dregs of society. Everybody else who had been cast out. That's who Matthew hung with. That's all he had to hang with. The question is, again, Mark doesn't give us all the details, but the question is, why does Matthew bring them to the house to eat with Jesus? 
Because Matthew's heart's been changed. And when your heart is changed, you want others to have what you found. And so here he is at his home bringing in sinners and other tax collectors and other dregs of society. And they're reclining to eat. Now, Mark tells us that because of their whole cultural situation there. When you reclined to eat with somebody, when you spent time and ate a meal with somebody, in this culture, it indicated friendship. It indicated social acceptance. It indicated that you were okay with these people. That's why as we look later on in that verse, when the scribes come and they're upset with Jesus, do they go into the house for the meal? No, they wait outside. They wait till it's all over because they're not going to be unclean. That's a tax collector in there. They're going to go after the disciples and Jesus on their exiting of that place. But Jesus is in there and he's having dinner with these folks. Many tax collectors. And I I thought about that because I thought about the biblical importance of hospitality. We've kind of lost that some in our generation. And it's sad. Because it's part of what builds community. And as Matthew wanted to bring his friends to Christ, where did he take them? He didn't invite them to church. There wasn't a church. Matthew said, come to my home. Eat dinner with me. And spend time with Jesus Christ. We ought to do that for sinners and saints alike. They were both there. The scripture tells us there were disciples there. People who already loved Christ and wanted to follow him. There were sinners and tax collectors there. The dregs of society. And they all got together at Matthew's invitation because Matthew said, come be with me because I want to share Jesus Christ. We miss something when we lose the ministry of hospitality. It's not the key to this passage, but it's part of what's here. Matthew brings them in and he shows them. And his purpose for bringing them is not to feed them a meal, even though he's doing that. What's Matthew's purpose for bringing them there? Jesus Christ is reclined there. You need to be with Jesus Christ. You need the message of Jesus Christ that I have. So he surrounds himself with these people, with these sordid friends. And again, that they might be with Jesus Christ and see. And then you look at this and you realize they were sinners and they knew it. Did the tax collectors realize that they were sinners? These guys were despicable. They knew who they were. They were okay with it. The money made it all okay. But they knew they were sinners. You look at this and you've got them. You've got other sinners that are there reclining with Jesus. And they know who they are. And they know they need Christ. Because if they didn't, they'd decline that invitation. You ever get invited to somebody's place that you knew was going to talk about Jesus or talk about spiritual things and you found something else to do? These folks were here because they wanted to be in touch with Christ. And so here are these groups of people here meeting with Christ, hearing all that. And Jesus Christ, from his viewpoint, is looking at them much different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are looking at them and saying what? These are unclean people. These people are unsalvageable. Don't mess with these people. Leave them alone. And Jesus Christ looks and said, no, this is my mission field. This is my mission. This is why I came. And, And as we see this, we've got to realize that Jesus Christ had an eye of compassion for sinners. Do you have an eye of compassion for sinners? You see, we we look at the Pharisees and we criticize them because they're asking for it. They're living their lives in such a hypocritical way. And yet, if we're not careful, people sitting in independent Baptist churches aren't much different. We like our friends, don't we? You You like Christian people who look like you 
who talk like you, who dress like you. Guess who's with Jesus? People who don't talk like him, dress like him, act like him. And Jesus is saying, these are the people who need the gospel. And many times we look across and say, but I don't know anybody like that. Whose fault is that? I love it when folks come to Christ for the first time because you know what they want to do? Exactly what Matthew did. I'm, I was a mess. And God's working in my life. And I've got friends who are a mess. And they need Christ. But somehow along the way, along the, the road of life, Christian folks get so wound up with Christian folks and in our little bubble and Christian community is important. Don't take me wrong. But we get so caught up with that that we couldn't have a meal like Matthew had because we don't know who to invite. Because we're not fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ. We're not finding the people who don't look like us, talk like us, and act like us. The people that maybe make us uncomfortable when we get in a conversation because we don't know what they're going to say next. They're going to say words that sometimes I, I'm naive. I don't even know what some of them mean. I used to look them up. I learned my lesson. Don't look up those words if you don't know what they said. You're better off not knowing some of them. But you ought to know those people. You, know, you ought to have care and love for people who don't know Jesus Christ. And if you've lost that, if you've lost your heart of compassion, we need to spend time just like Jesus did away in prayer saying, God, touch my heart and give me back that heart of compassion. Because it's easy to get skeptical. It's easy to get callous. It's easy to look at folks who don't like the gospel and make fun of us who do and say, you know what, they're getting what they deserve. But Jesus Christ didn't do that. He reached out. He made a difference in lives. And so that's what we see happening here in this whole passage. It's interesting. This is the first time in the book of Mark, as we look at verse 15, that that word disciple is used. Those who are supposed to be learning as apprentices. Jesus Christ is having dinner with who? The sinners, the people who need the gospel. And what's he trying to teach his disciples? Go thou and do likewise. Love people. And don't do it in a hypocritical way. Be with them because you love them and you want to see them come to Christ. And you build relationships that they might come to Christ. He's reclining with them at dinner. Did Jesus know what that would do to his reputation? From the moment, Jesus knew before that. But obviously from the moment he looked at at Levi and said, follow me, he knew exactly what that would do to his reputation. But he he was more interested in the truth. He was more interested in living a life of compassion. He was more geared into his mission, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. So he befriends these folks. And then look at verse 16. Now we see the contempt. If you live for Jesus Christ, if you live for Jesus Christ this way, I guarantee you that there are going to be people that look down their nose at you. You know, there may even be good, solid Christian people who look down their nose and say, what are you doing with those people? They will corrupt your thinking. They will corrupt your minds. They need Christ. And if you don't go, who's going? If you leave it to somebody else to do, who's going to do that work? And so here we have the contempt of the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they were eating, saw him, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Though they would not defile themselves by going in, they were ready to set things right when they came out. And so here they were waiting for Jesus. Now, it's interesting, because we look at Jesus' response in the book of Mark, and it looks pretty calm, it looks pretty just matter-of-fact, it's not. If you look at what Matthew has to say, Matthew fills in some blanks between the fact that the two phrases that we're going to get from Jesus Christ in response to this, Matthew's going to teach us that Jesus Christ is going to be very, very judgmental on where they were. 
and setting things straight. But in the meantime, we have these folks. And he looks, he says, why are they defiling themselves? Luke 5 verse 30 says, they came and it wasn't a sincere question. Luke tells us that they came grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat with the sinners and tax collectors? So as he catches, these scribes catch these disciples coming out. They look at the disciples, and they're not only, according to Mark, accusing Jesus Christ, but they're accusing his disciples with him. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, that we would be accused of doing the wrong thing because we're doing what Jesus Christ would do. And here he's, he, they're getting accused, and he looks at him and says, what are you doing doing this? You know better. You know better why. You know what our rules are. Those people are unclean. You're supposed to be good Jewish people. Whatever else you say about Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were known as being good Jewish men. And he said, what do you think you're doing? And so all of this is coming out of contempt because they look and say, these people aren't worth anything. And Jesus Christ is saying, these people are the reason I came. These people are the reason I'm going to die. And what's intended to be a rebuke ends up becoming a teachable moment for Jesus Christ. They look and say, how can you be accepting these people? Because the problem in the heart of the scribes is they arrogantly considered themselves to be spiritually whole where they ought to be. Can Christians wind up there? Again, they don't know Christ. But I look at this and say, there is a danger that the closer we grow to being Christ-like, the more our hearts take over and tell us, look how well you're doing. It's not how well I'm doing. It's the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ working in and through me if there's anything happening on a positive note. And so as they're looking at these things, they are arrogantly saying, we are spiritually alive when in reality Jesus Christ is going to tell them they're spiritually blind and destitute and they're headed for hell. There's more than being religious to being what we ought to be in God and Christ. They are devoid of any grace and they're full of legalism. And so Jesus comes out in verse 17 and he deals with the situation. And we're going to finish this here. When Jesus heard it, you ever been talking about somebody behind their back and they walk up behind you and suddenly there they stand and you know they're there? That's the scribes. Here come the disciples. What's Jesus doing eating with these people? And when Jesus hears it, he responds. And as they're squirming over this, still, still angry, still self-righteous, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus answers them with a stinging rebuke of his own that's missing in the book of Mark. If you look over at Matthew chapter 9, in between the fact where he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he adds this phrase, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He puts it into these, in between these phrases for a really important reason we'll talk about in just a moment. But Jesus answers their question with three parts. Number one, a medical analogy. He looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says what? Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I'm hanging out with the spiritually sick because they need what I have for them. They need the gospel that I have to bring to them. The calloused hearts of the Pharisees kept them from seeing what he needed. But then Jesus answers them from the Old Testament scriptures. Now he gets right on their turf. This is where the scribes live, the Old Testament scriptures. And he says to them, go and learn what this means. Now to us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. If you read through Josephus and a few others in the Talmud, when somebody said, and it was normally the scribes and the rabbis who would say this, go and learn what this means, it was a very derogatory statement. Basically, it's, it would say to a student, what you just said is so foolish, you need to get back in the book and find out what life is really like. 
And Jesus Christ looks at the scribes themselves and uses their own phrase. And says, go and learn what this means. Learn what what means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 6, verse 6. And he says, here's what needs to be taking place. What's going on in your heart? Not in your head. Have you got mercy and love for these folks? That's why I'm going I'm to die for these folks. So that their sins can be forgiven. And you will go to an eternity in hell because you didn't learn. You didn't pick it up. You didn't put your faith in the right thing. You put your faith in yourselves. And there are so many folks that are like that today. It breaks my heart when I talk to neighbors and friends and they look at me and they say, you know what? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good guy. If they start with that, you're in trouble. You know, I I think at the end, I've done enough good things. I had one neighbor tell me, you know, I think I've done enough good things by now that if God won't accept me now, he never will. And it breaks his heart and he wanted to break my nose. When I told him, you know... God doesn't work that way. What do you mean he doesn't work that way? It's, it's all Christ, it's none of you. And he couldn't get his mind around that. And that's where the Pharisees are. They've got to do all these things to be right with God. And Jesus Christ said, go learn. It's what's going on in your hearts and what you do in your heads and all these extra rules that you keep externally don't do it for you. And, and again, I fear sometimes for Baptist folks that have grown up in independent Baptist churches. Because as a kid... I felt like I was under a Pharisee ministry for a long time. They'd look at, do this, don't do this. You've got to wear this. You can't wear this. You can't do that. And God's got his rules. But I, have to, I tell you right now, there were Sunday school teachers that were more concerned about what I was wearing and if I was doing the exact right thing at the right time in their opinion than they were about, was my heart right with Christ? And so we try to impose holiness on that ought to come from the inside out. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus Christ is saying... God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires people to go in and to share the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ. And lives will be changed after that. And you look at Matthew. Was Matthew's life changed? Forever. With one encounter with Jesus Christ. And all that the Pharisees were trying to do. Did they ever impact Matthew for a bit of good? Not once. Because the answer is in Jesus Christ. And you can share with people what they ought to do all the time, but if you don't share Christ with them, they'll never change. Because it's Christ who changes hearts and lives. And then Jesus reiterates his ministry, and we'll stop here. He says, I came not to call righteous, but sinners. And Luke adds the word right after that, sinners to repentance. Christ said, this is why I'm here. I want to find the people that might not look like you, and might not look like me, and might not talk like us, and might not have the desires that we have, and I want to share with the gospel with them, because if they'll repent, God will do work in their heart and he'll change their lives. So what do we do with all this? Jesus Christ, he was God. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. Number one, beware of self-righteousness. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you're tempted to become self-righteous and to lose a heart of mercy and compassion for those who don't. Pray God will give you a heart of mercy and compassion over the Christmas season. There are men and women all over our town that need Christ. Will you even notice them? There's tracks back there, and it's not the only way to do it. It's better off you make friendships if you want my opinion, but at least take some tracks and give them out to somebody that you know needs the story of Christmas and Christ. Maybe it'll be the open door for you to begin sharing it. Do something to share Christ. Secondly, are you following Matthew's example of hospitality? You ever have folks over to your home? Whether Christian folks to encourage them in Christ like the disciples or unsaved folks to be able to model Christ for them, if nothing else, and share Christ. 
we used to be better at that as a society. Now we close our doors and we're home and we lock our fortresses and our castles and we take care of ourselves. Look at Matthew's example. And then third, are you willing to make an effort to befriend and reach out to people who need Christ the most? I guarantee you. Because God works this way. He always does. If you start praying, God, help me to be like that, he's going to send somebody across your way that you would normally not spend time with. He may send somebody across your way that you don't want to spend time with. But pray, God, help me to make a difference, and he'll lead you to people who need Christ. Are you willing to pray, God, this season, this Christmas season, help me to share Jesus Christ with those who need him most? They may not look like you. They may not talk like you. But Jesus Christ died that they might have eternal life, and now he wants you to take that message to them. Will you have that kind of following for Jesus Christ to follow his example? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look at the Gospel of Mark. And there is so much in our here for us to learn. Jesus Christ went across the grain of so many things that the people of his time thought were the right way to do things in order to do the right thing. God, I pray that you'll give us a heart and a compassion for people. Whether it be family members, neighbors, or just people that we're going to run into and encounter this Christmas season, may you give us Christ's heart for compassion for people, whoever they are, wherever they may be. And Lord, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be that which changes hearts and lives. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.